Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the latest episode of Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. My guest today is I'm, uh, the author of an extraordinary book uh, that I'm confident will be, as it doubtless already has been, upheld uh, for some time, for a long time into the future, as an exemplar of historical materialist analysis in the Marxist tradition. Um, uh, book is a real testament to just how powerful this kind of analysis can be when a thinker doesn't just mechanically apply a sort of pre-existing critical filter to the phenomena under question, but rather allows its material to continually rebound upon and shape explicitly the critical lens through which the material, in this case, a history of political struggle and political reflection is observed and ultimately elucidated. The book in question is about race and class in Trump's America and the social and political history of this conjuncture. But whereas many more predictable and in comparison to my guest works, glib works on this topic might treat these categories as if they refer to unchanging, substantial and indisputable realities, my guest work by contrast never loses sight of the way in which these categories emerge from and need to be referred back to changing social reality, social relations which are at their roots, relations that change in accordance with the way the economies and societies are organized in the face of different strategies of power and the ruling classes, but also as a result of the history of mass movements and struggles for emancipation and equality. Um, the book in question brings together both uh, in an admirably terse uh, manner, uh, theoretically sophisticated reflections on the work uh, and uh, polit uh, political actions of Stuart Hall, Wendy Brown, Tisa Louverture, Nikos Poulantzis, C.L.R. James, Huey Newton, Etienne Balibar, Amiri Baraka, the Combihi River Collective, and Alain Badiou, among others. The book is called Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. The author is Assad Haider, a founding editor of Viewpoint magazine and a recent visiting professor at the New School of Social Research. Uh, Assad is, I'm terribly excited to say, with me in the studio. Assad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brian. Um, and Assad, uh, forgive me for this slightly tired and twee signature gimmick of this podcast, podcast but Assad Haider, um, I'm really expecting you to have several objections to this question, but how did philosophy ruin your life? Yeah, I thought a lot about the question, and I think that the real answer is that philosophy did not ruin my life, but it's caused a great deal of annoyances in my life. And I think that the, um, <clears throat> the way that philosophy is annoying is the sense in which it is constituted as an academic discipline. Mm. And so the you know disciplinary character of philosophy especially in the united states you know where we have the total almost total hegemony of analytic philosophy yes it, um it, it is simply a, a kind of um confinement of thought yes you know th there's a sense in which um you know, it's a funny question, how did philosophy ruin your life? Because we can go back to a very classical conception of philosophy as part of an art of living. Definitely. And in that sense, uh, philosophy is part of the many different arts 
that we would be engaged in to live well. Uh, but the formation of philosophy as a discipline is one which um, uh, confines thought, I think. And um, I've put that in a general sense just now, but we can think of it in a very specific sense as the way that philosophy seems to um, define itself through pushing away uh, a reference to social life, social analysis, uh, to the to, to all the other practices. Let's say to you know. Let, let me actually let me um, modify the way that I put that. Mm. Um, let's think of it in turn. In the you know you you I know are into uh, Baidu, so let's think of it in his terms, in the sense that. The problem with philosophy in its in, in the way that it's generally practiced is the way that there's a constant constant attempt to suture it to the other procedures which must necessarily lie outside of it that generate truths. Uh, so art, politics, love and science. Precisely. So I think this this is a great problem that we see in philosophy. And it's, you know, maybe I would say from my own personal position, having written this book on identity politics and on race, that um, many of the conversations that I'm called into within philosophy are based precisely on a process of suturing, of suturing, let's say, the language of analytic philosophy to a purportedly political position taken with regards to issues of identity or whatever. But um, it's this, it's, it's a suturing. It's not an actual process by which the procedures external to philosophy generate something totally new, which then philosophy has to think through and figure out what are the consequences of this. I think, you know, that's, that, that's a kind of philosophy that um, makes a case for its own existence. But I think it's not one that we see in the discipline of philosophy often enough. I, um, that's uh, wonderfully articulated, uh, Asad, and I, I completely agree with you. I, I'm interested, actually, in it. Um, uh, I, I want to pick up on a particular part of what you said. So um, when you started to talk about the uh, I suppose the the poverty of of academic philosophy and and uh, possibly under the the hegemony of uh, analytic philosophy. But I I know you uh, I I'm going to assume you you wouldn't uh, get let so called continental philosophy off the hook any any more. But originally when when you started speaking, I thought you were going to say you know this is a um, narrow academic um, uh, discipline that plays uh, it's a sort of stereotype of analytic philosophy uh, these uh, sterile anemic uh, logic games or, or something is a, is a discourse completely cut off from the from the world but um, uh, and, and you may mean that to some extent but you went on to talk about the suture and if I understand you correctly this is something that I've noticed recently as well which is an attempt within academic in the anglophone world predominantly analytic philosophy to um, start talking about social political 
questions, but to do so in such a way as if they, I, I don't know, already have knowledge generated in the academy of anything, everything important related to these social political questions, often through a kind of series of liberal catechisms. Uh, but this this turn to being more socially conscious actually um, uh, takes the form of a way of ignoring what's going on, say, politically in history, in, in the arts and in the sciences, rather than, rather than being a genuine opening to it. Is, is this what you, part of what you mean by, a, a, by speaking of a, a suture in, in Badiou Lacan's sense, a suture to, to politics rather than, uh, rather than treating it as a, as a condition for, for thought? Well, I think, first of all, I take your point that it was, you know, it's not quite fair to pick on analytic philosophy in particular because you see the same kinds of suturing happening with, say, phenomenology. I mean, that's one obvious kind of approach that comes to mind, yeah. which is just as bad, you know? Um, so uh, it's kind of, um, it's more stark, the contrast between the highly logical language of analytic philosophy and then the um, categories of identity politics, which are so grounded in experience and so on. Yes, you know, yes. One can understand how you would suture phenomenology to that, but to so, suture logic to that is bizarre. It results <laughs> in monstrous texts, really, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, I think the, this point is correct. We, have to, we, do, we do have to extend the criticism, and I would say that I think what happens is that when you don't recognize the totally separate and independent character of the truth procedure, you close down the possibility that it can generate something new. That is, when you're engaged in the practice of suturing, philosophy talks about politics, and it can only talk about let's say maybe the political, it can only talk about what already exists politically mm. it, as, as a kind of discourse on what is already constituted as the political. It's only when you recognize the radical separateness of the practice of philosophy from the truth procedures of politics that it's possible for politics to generate a new truth, which then philosophy can um, elaborate on, that philosophy can uh, trace the consequences of. I mean, uh, I think that if philosophy is a commentary on politics or an attempt to capture politics, an attempt to produce a knowledge of politics even, then the possibility of a political event is foreclosed. I think that that's, I, I mean, I would go as far as to make that claim, which actually, it, it renders somewhat problematic the fact that I was interested, as you were describing my book, that you described it as, you know, a, a historical materialist analysis, which, you know, is a, it, it is in one sense a great 
praise, but then on the other hand, does this constitute politics? I wonder, you know, did I, did I manage, I, I achieved perhaps historical materialist analysis, which is okay, but politics is better. And, you know, that's, uh, that's a higher standard. <laughs> I, I, I think that's, I think that's, uh, that, I think that's, that's, uh, that's right, Asa, uh, uh, and that's uh, uh, brilliantly put. But I, I think, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the book, obviously, and I, I don't just mean to, to flatter you, but in, in some ways, I think you are uh, being uh, too modest in the sense that I think some of the we will get into this but the success of the book is is comes precisely from the fact that i think it lives in that tension that there's an awareness um that even i don't know good analytic methods right an analytic method rigorously applied like that of historical materialism is not the same thing as as politics and um and uh what i what i hear in in what you're saying is a um, something that I think can never be emphasized enough and is, is perhaps a, a danger of not just inherent in not just philosophy, but, but I suppose all forms of academicism, which is uh, to presume um, that, I don't know, say uh, politics is, is ultimately dependent on knowledge. Yeah. Um, Anyway, I, I, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure what you think of that or, or um, whether you want to uh, discuss this, this further, but it, it does lead me to uh, a question about uh, your own um, intellectual influences. This is something that's mentioned in the book, um, um, particularly in its, in its first chapter. But apart from uh, the things that were um, frustrating and limited um, about academic life. Um, books also uh, a testimony to a series of, of uh, experiences, uh, political involvements, and uh, um, encounters with uh, histories and, and theories which uh, seem to inform what you're, what, what you're doing in it, um, in, in the book. Um, can you tell me a, a little bit about how you, how you came to, to write the book and uh, the kinds of um, influences um, that led you to take the perspective that you, you do? Okay, first I'm going to address something that you said about the relation between politics and knowledge. Yeah. And there's a the second level of a question. It has to do with the status of historical materialism and the relationship of historical materialism to politics. Mm. Here's the point. And this is something that I would attribute, you know, to, um, uh, I'd use um, influence Sylvain Lazarus. Yes. Um, uh, which, which is the point that emancipatory politics has to be understood in affirmative terms which cannot be based on a foundation in the social in, or in social analysis. Mm -hmm. That is, we may have a historical materialist analysis of um, the social structure and of the various sociological categories of the society, but they can never in themselves give us the forms of political subjectivity 
that belong to the order of politics. Yes. And so there is always a gap there. And the, the, I mean, the gap is a huge problem and question, you know? I mean, this is something we are constantly grappling with because at the same time, it's impossible to conceive of a political subject which doesn't have some kind of material existence in the situation, which you would identify through social analysis. While at the same time, if you define the political subjectivity entirely in terms of the social analysis, you restrict it to what already exists. And so this is the great dilemma. Um, and so that's, that's the um, kind of tension that I was just sort of um, alluding to when I, when I said this thing about historical materialism. Yeah. But so what, what concretely does this mean in terms of how I came to write the book? I, I think you were asking me a much more straightforward question about the influences, but I'm going to just answer in a conceptual way. Oh, excellent. By all means. <laughs> so the, 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 what is going on is I was trying to articulate a perspective of emancipatory politics, which could account or the political history of the United States, which I had become familiar with in my own process of politicization as a young person growing up in this country, and in the immediate political situations that I had participated in, I was trying to understand that from the vantage point of emancipatory politics, I was trying to understand it with reference to the historical materialist theories which presented a form of social analysis, which actually did provide a foundation for emancipatory politics in the categories of social analysis. That's Marxism in the sense that Marxism grounded emancipatory politics in the sociological category of class. So this was the great breakthrough of Marxism, which was to say that we can identify the agent, which will be the liberation of all of humanity, which will achieve the liberation of all of humanity within the sociological categories of the analysis of capital, capitalist society, which are not unique to Marxism. Marx constantly makes this, you know, he constantly makes the point, the class struggle was already recognized by all these theorists, all these theorists before him. Yes. But he recognized that the class struggle would lead to the dictatorship of the proletariat and the eventual abolition of classes. And so this was the great move of Marxism, which is at once a great achievement and then at the same time something which is very limited to its own historical situation in the sense that uh, the historical process that unfolds afterwards shows that emancipatory politics doesn't actually rest on this foundation because what we find first with the example of the Paris Commune is that the, uh, the elaboration of post-capitalist forms of life comes independent of the workers' movement, of the organized workers' movement, and then through the 20th century revolutions, we see that the 
revolutions, first of all, are not fundamentally proletarian and that they result not through the kind of organic process of the organization of the industrial proletariat, but through the uh, production of forms of organization that are not just determined by historical laws, the Leninist party and so on. And so, you know, this, this, is, this is a kind of interpretation of Marxism, which I, I now have um, been able to develop and, and to understand. At the time that I was writing the book, I was thinking through a basic problem, which was that the struggles against racism in the United States constituted kind of primary reference point for emancipatory politics. They conceived of themselves as struggles against racism and also as struggles against capitalism. That, yes. that was a consistent theme in these movements. And so, you know, if you, I mean, what Marxism did was it provided a theory of universal emancipation and it identified the agent of universal emancipation as the proletariat on the basis of an analysis of a social analysis of capitalist society, which guaranteed this character. Now, one kind of move, theoretical move that you could make, if you recognize the emancipatory character of anti-racist anti struggles and you have the Marxist vantage point, let's say the historical materialist vantage point, is that you can present an argument that racism is a fundamental aspect of capitalism. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in some sense, this demonstrates why the anti-racist struggle and the class struggle are inextricable. You know, and in a way, I was, I was interested in that line of argument. I, want, I was exploring that line of argument, which would demonstrate why anti-racist struggles from a Marxist perspective shouldn't be considered to be secondary to class struggles that are supposedly race neutral or whatever, um, but should be seen as central to the anti-capitalist struggle. But as I thought this through and as I engaged in debates that came out of the book and so on, I, I, I began to realize that this was really a kind of roundabout way of getting at the problem of emancipatory politics and thinking about emancipation on its own terms rather than grounding it in social analysis. Mm -hmm. So once we begin with the question of emancipatory politics, if, if that's our starting point, if we conceive of political subjectivity in terms of itself, rather than starting with an objective foundation, then I think it's clear that anti-racist struggles are emancipatory on their own terms in the same way that class struggles are. And that both of them are forms of existence of a politics of universal emancipation. And so that is really the question. And so I, I think, you know, my book was my way of being able to pose that question to myself. And since then, this is, for me, the, the, these for me are the great theoretical conceptual problems to think through. How can we 
understand emancipatory politics on its own terms? And then how can we engage in, you know, I, I don't usually use this word, I use it with reluctance, but how can we have a dialectic between the, um, the affirmative conception of emancipatory politics and the social analysis of specific situations? That's, that's for me now the major problem. That's th thank you, uh, uh, Saad. That's it. that's uh, really fascinating, um, especially in, in terms of um, laying out the problem that was occupying you uh, when you wrote the book, but also how your how your thinking on on this has has developed. Even even though I do see uh, signs, especially in its uh, your last chapter where you do uh, talk about a sort of radical universalism and um, uh, universal emancip emancipation that that I can see, but by the end of the, the the book, that the problem that you just articulated is is um, uh, becoming particularly urgent for you. Just just on the b b before we, we we turn to the the, the book, just on the the uh, really interesting and I think um, fundamental uh, series of questions that you've just posed. I I wanted. Yeah, I wanted to to try something and see what you think of it. So, um, the way I um, understand what you're saying is is from the perspective of uh, at least as I understand it, someone like Badiou, um, there's a there's a kind of uh, rock and a, a, a whirlpool <laughs> um, problem uh, posed by Marxism, and 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 one is that if you uh, do not. I mean, this is this. I, I suppose I don't even need the reference to Badiou. It's it's a very it's a very classical problem within Marxist thought that if you if you don't try and uh, think about politics with some reference to an analysis of uh, a particular uh, conjuncture or of um, given social relations, you're in danger of making politics into a a voluntarism um, or a pure kind of uh, moral imperative, right? Like, like as in, as in, just you know, we would like there to be emancipation or equality, to, to put it very crudely. Um, but the but the conversely, um, as you've as you've articulated uh, so well, that w sometimes one of the the dangers of um, various forms of social analysis is that you can't go beyond present conditions right is as in that you're giving an analysis of social relations as they exist under this particular form of social organization and that by definition isn't going to yield you the the a new kind of political subject that is going to um uh, have have the power to radically change uh, the situation in which we live. I mean, in 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 some ways, it seems to me that this this problem is uh, encoded in in the uh, equivocity of a of a term like proletariat of of you know that term being sort of positioned between a sort of uh, def sociological definition of an already existing class, which 
is seems to me not quite marxist right like like that you can work out who the proletariat are through social analysis but also the fact that the proletariat as kind of um uh bearer of the universal that which will abolish existing conditions cannot be a uh de- a determinate part um of the of of the whole and um I've been doing uh, some some work uh, recently on on kind of uh, early Badiou and and theory of the subject and also his um, uh, Maoist group in the in the nineteen seventies, the UCMFL. And um, one of the things that they say there, which I'm, uh, uh, later Badiou has different things to say, but one of the the things um, Badiou says in in his works of the 70s that I, I wanted to run by you and, and see what you think is he um, he talks about the subject or the political subject which is in 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 some ways a name for a, a potential party or um, organization of, of different political struggles he talks about the political subject as um, at once emerging from uh, a given social structure and being irreducible to it. And then he he takes up, I think, a problem very similar to the one that you've articulated. And I think his solution at the time, which he subsequently finds inadequate, is to invoke, but I mention this because it reminds me of, of uh, something that seems to me at the forefront of your, of your book and what you've just said. He has recourse to a category uh, unfortunately, slightly ambiguous category called periodization, where on the one hand, he kind of su- suggests, even, even at that time, that the emergence of a political subject is contingent on something, let, let's say, aleatory, right? Something, something unpredictable, like uh, you've, already, you've already mentioned the event. However, that as well as emerging out of a particular set of social relations, the emergence of that subject is also going to be inflected by periodization means, I, I, I think, you know, the history of past struggles towards the same goal of universal emancipation, the past victories and the defeat. So, so something like, you know, the Paris Commune, 1917, um, then, yeah, uh, uh, and, and so on, a kind of, a kind of sequence of uh, a history that is not uh, history in general, but actually um, the history of attempts to make this subject uh, emerge or for it to fulfill its goals of universal emancipation. Does that, does that make any sense, Assad? Is that, is that something you can take up? These are, these are um, points that I think are very important to explore right now. I think that First of all, to speak in a more general sense, I would say that the important insight of Badiou, I mean, is that as we take up positions now on emancipatory politics, we certainly are positioning ourselves with relation to the whole history of emancipatory events that precede us. Yes. You know, it's not, we are not formulating emancipatory politics as a set of norms or something like that. Uh, We are... Uh, making a decision of fidelity to the emancipatory events that have taken place. I think this is very important. I think that, you know, because otherwise I think that, you know, there's on the one hand, the 
a certain kind of um, historical materialism which says that the emancipatory subject is determined by historical laws. Yeah. So there's teleology which says that there will be a good society in the future and that emancipatory politics is based on our orientation towards that. Or we could have, you know, the kind of liberal procedure of coming up with a set of norms that define what a good society would be. But actually emancipatory politics is our declaration of fidelity to those moments in which people have become subjects. They have actually stood up to injustice and they have produced the possibility of a universal emancipation. That's, that's what it means Absolutely. to take to emancipatory politics. Now you raise a very, um, like uh, a technical problem, which is that of periodization. Yes. Now, I think that there's a certain level which Badu in this period, you know, in the in the seventies, is engaged in the Oedipal revolt against Althusser. Yes. Um, it's like very yeah. Yeah, it's very pronounced here. It's sort of in some ways more interesting than what Rancière wrote and so on, but um, it's still overstated. And, uh, you know, of course he has softened since then, though not everybody understands this. I think that um, it's the achievements of the Althusserian reading were so much taken for granted in this milieu that when they, when they engaged in this totally off-the-rails extreme attack on Althusser, um, the insights had already been absorbed. Unfortunately, in the Anglo-American world of theory, uh, we didn't ever absorb those insights. And so then we read these criticisms and we miss what they already, you know, the, the point, the more advanced point from which they were starting. Uh, so I think that's an issue that I see sometimes in the interpretation of this material. Now, I would say that um, one of the very important insights of the Althusserian inter interpretation was the critique of periodization. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important to pay attention to this idea that periodization is a method which is very intrinsically caught up with the model, first of all, of the teleological conception of history and second of the model of expressive causality or expressive totality in the sense that periodization means that when we study social phenomena, we understand them as expressions of that um, stage of the evolution of the essential contradiction. And, you know, Althusser said that, you know, you can't maintain that perspective once you have understood that Marxism has proposed an understanding of history as a process without a subject or a goal. Yes. You've really understood that conception of history. You can no longer engage in that kind of process of periodization insofar as it's understood as periods of the evolution of the historical totality. So, does this mean, you know, that we can't um, identify periods in history? We can't identify, you know, the way that 
phenomena evolve throughout history? Of course not. So we do have to do that. So it's a question of what do we mean when we elaborate these historical categories? I think that, you know, in, in the best way, when at certain points when Baidu is talking about this kind of historical analysis, certainly when Lazarus talks about what he calls historical modes of politics, I think we're not engaged in the practice of periodization so much as we are um, engaged in a kind of process of, um, to use Lazarus's language, thesis, theses of existence, to say that this happened, you know? So we, we will look back at history and say that, okay, emancipatory politics happened in this place, in this way. And we can look at what categories it generated, what practices it generated. And then we can look at how another sequence came after, which changed the categories, which introduced new categories and so on. But that doesn't mean that we understand everything as the expression of the totality within itself. Mm. It, it means making a statement of existence which said this happened. I think that's the, that, that is the method that we can defend. That's, that's a magnificent uh, corrective because, yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. Because al although uh, Badiou uses, uses that term, you're, you're, completely right I think to to mention um, the baggage that that term uh, carries in being connected to sort of an idea of teleology and um, the uh, an expressive causality and and I think it's 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 true that that Badiou in the 70s already has that critique um, of the whole the rejection of teleology but I think I think you might be right that some of his more uh, orthodox rhetoric at that time. So for example, using the term as as I just did, and you were right. You were right to to correct me on that. Can especially in a sort of um, anglophone uh, context that received kind of critiques of Althusser before receiving uh, actual Althusser, um, um, that but you can be misread as kind of. Uh, regressing behind Althusser rather than trying to uh, do something more like what I think you are articulated um, and what I was was aiming at, which is a, a sort of preservation of of uh, of what was most important in the idea of periodization, i.e., that attention uh, uh, to um, past struggles and even thinking about sequences, but dissociated from this. Uh, uh, least tenable aspect of Marxism, which is which is the kind of the the totality and the teleology and so forth. So I think I think that was an incredibly helpful um, intervention. Now I um, I I'm very much uh, in enjoying the, the discussion of these of these conceptual issues, and I'd, I'd like to uh, to come back to them, but maybe to <laughs> in a sense descend back into the cave um i wanted to to ask you so so in your uh political and uh current uh in in your current in your current thinking these are the these are the issues that most concern you um but from this perspective you uh, uh, a few years ago made it made an intervention into something that i think uh 
members of, of the audience of this podcast, really anyone who's ever been online uh, for a few seconds will be eminently familiar with, which is a kind of uh, discourse around identity, right? Like references to identity, uh, critiques of identity, people talking about the importance of identity, people talking about uh, identity politics having gone too far. And you from, as a, as a person who's, who's thinking about these larger um, issues, um, made this, uh, I think, extraordinary intervention into these debates. Can you, can you tell me a little, and, and our audience a little bit about um, uh, what, what made you want to uh, intervene on these issues? Essentially, the reason for my intervention was that I was someone who had been introduced to politics and introduced quite specifically to emancipatory politics. Through my um, uh, education in the struggles against racism in the United States, and this was the civil rights movement, the black power movement, black nationalism. Um, I talk about some of it in my book, what I read at the time. Yes. Um, and you know, that was the pathway for me to understanding a broader conception of revolutionary politics, which went beyond just the, you know, situation of the United States. You know, I, 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 it really led me to a global perspective. And what I noticed was that there was a polarized discussion in the kind of revival of interest in socialism in the social movements that I had been participating in um, years later, let's say in the period starting from the Occupy movement and everything that's happened since then. Um, what I noticed was a polarization between, let's say, first, a kind of revival of interest in socialism and in Marxism, which didn't seem to engage with the um, contributions of black Marxists in the U.S. or of the Marxists in Africa, Asia, and Latin America that had really made Marxism into a living force in the 20th century in, in the, you know, um, reading that I had done and in the, the, the way that I had kind of developed an understanding of it. So I saw that on the one hand, there was a way that there was a kind of, um, you know, restriction of Marxism. It was a restriction of class struggle to a kind of very European or advanced capitalist scene. And then on the other hand, there was an idea of the, of, of taking up the legacy of struggles against racism, but separating them from the aspiration towards universal emancipation I thought had been so much at the center of the anti-racist movements that I had studied. You know, I, it, was, it was very clear in the way that, you know, the most obvious example and the one that I started with was the Black Panther Party, but it's by no means restricted to that, that the people who were engaged in the struggle against racism, against imperialism, were also engaged in the struggle against capitalism and were understanding the complicated processes by which you could generate a universal emancipatory subject in a context in which racial differentiation and domination had introduced these barriers 
to the formation of universal subject. Yes. And so these were the two parallel criticisms that I had. On the one hand, of a conception of class of Marxism that isolated itself from the most, from some of the most significant actual political sequences of the 20th century. And then on the other hand, of a conception of a politics against racism, which didn't engage with the uh, very possibility of universal emancipation of the anti-capitalist character of these struggles. So I wanted to recover that perspective, that perspective in which there was no separation between a struggle against racism and a struggle against capitalism, that they were conceived of as part of the same struggle. And, um, you know, the, it was very, and I thought that, you know, this wasn't a marginal position. This wasn't some kind of strange um, hybrid position or anything like that. I thought that this polarized discussion that we saw in the recent, uh, that, that, we, that, that I had seen in the present, was actually a really convoluted kind of um, very uh, strange, complicated way of kind of avoiding that central proposition of emancipatory politics that I had learned. I mean, when, when you look at the way that someone can try to argue for the renewal of Marxism and completely leave out all the anti-imperialist movements, all of the movements of the 20th century. I mean, that's extraordinary. That, that requires a great level of theoretical and historical contortion and um, willful blindness and so on. Absolutely. And it's, you know, the same goes for what's called identity politics, the way that you would look back at the history of the movements that actually confronted racism and challenged it on a mass scale uh, at the global level to isolate that from uh, the anti-capitalist struggle or to turn Marxism to some kind of um, uh, antagonist from that perspective is, is just, it's bizarre actually. It's really strange. You, you have to really put in an effort to make this kind of uh, distorted presentation. Uh, wonderful. Although you, um, uh, you uh, say that this is uh, bizarre, this, this polarization, and, uh, and, uh, and I, of course, uh, agree, um, but you, you, you do also, I think, in, in the book suggest that 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 polarization or this this forgetting this kind of historical oblivion uh, isn't just something that happened by accident, right? Or, or isn't something mysterious. Um, one of the things that seems to me, I, I, I'm not sure if you'd agree, but 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 that your your book does is is trace a kind of genealogy of of the kinds of forgetting, like sometimes through political defeat sometimes through particular strategies divided classic divide and conquer strategies of 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 power that led to the oblivion of this arguably sort of i mean well no not arguably of this of this definitely um uh, incredibly significant 20th century um these incredibly significant 20th century movements of of universal emancipation can, can you um uh, tell us uh, a, a little bit about uh, the the history 
out of which um, this this kind of uh, forgetting was was produced. So here I would point to what I think is the major theoretical concept of the book, which I, you know, in some ways I wish had been more uh, directly discussed, which is I propose the concept of neutralization. And I understand uh, what we call contemporary identity politics as the neutralization of mass movements against racism. Yes. In the sense that mass movements in general, I mean, I mean, we, we have to understand the significance of what it means for there to be a mass movement. That when we talk about emancipatory politics, we are always necessarily talking about mass movements because we have to be thinking in terms of a proposal of an understanding of politics which is based on the generic human capacity to act politically. That is, a, a capacity which is totally equally shared by all people. If, if you don't have that kind of egalitarian proposal, then I don't, you know, you don't have an emancipatory politics. It's not meaningful to say that that's an emancipatory politics without this basic egalitarian principle. And so mass movements are a basic condition for emancipatory politics. And this is something that is not understood if you conceive, let's say, of socialism in terms of economic redistribution. If you understand it in terms of redistribution within the existing property relations, yes. you, have not, you, you have not generated an understanding of a different kind of society in which everyone's equal capacity for control over their own lives is the basic condition of political and social life. So, I mean, that, that's one of the great grievances that I uh, was voicing against the contemporary socialist revival, uh, which, which, which suppressed this point. Um, and so this is the crucial thing. Mass movements may not center directly on demands for economic redistribution in the terms that we would recognize from our perspective as socialists or whatever, as, um, you know, they may not correspond to a demand for the welfare state, something like that, but they may correspond to the demand that people who have been excluded from basic citizenship rights should be able to express their political agency. They should be able to oppose laws that prevent them from not just voting, but from uh, going into particular public spaces and so on. This is what the struggle against segregation was. Mm. And so it was a mass movement with a, in a, with a basically emancipatory content. And I agree with Baju, you know, look, the politics that's advanced in those uh, uh, events is eternal. So the fact that we no longer live in a society with legal segregation, we no longer live with Jim Crow, it doesn't change the fact that the mass movements that challenge Jim Crow have a content which is eternal. It's universally relevant and it remains relevant. And so, you know, that's the starting point of this analysis. And then we have to say, okay, what happens concretely when we watch the process by which these 
emancipatory movements, these mass movements play out, we see a process by which their emancipatory content gets neutralized. And it gets neutralized in various ways. Now, obviously, there's a, you know, we know about processes of state capture, of, of, of co-optation and things like that. We also have to be aware of internal contradictions, the points at which the, a particular set of strategies, aims, um, and processes that are particular to a, a given historical mode of politics enter into situations in which they can no longer be sustained and, and new strategies are acquired, new programs are acquired. And so part of what I trace out in the book, you know, in, in, in very schematic terms, is the way that the mass movements against racism, you know, uh, especially starting in the 1950s and evolving over the next couple decades, um, achieve enormous transformations in American society and then enter into a crisis both determined by their own strategic and organizational limits and also by the uh, processes of uh, capture and uh, co-optation and containment by the state and capital. And so what I describe as neutralization is the way that the, the uh, emancipatory content of the movement is removed while the language and rhetoric and so on of uh, the struggle against racism is adopted by tendencies which are entirely internal to the status quo. And so concretely this process, you know, is the rise of a kind of um, black political class after the great legislative achievements of the civil rights movement. This is a process that many historians have described. There's nothing original in my recounting of it. But I, what I argue is that what we now call identity politics, insofar as it's a politics of recognition, of social mobility, of individual advancement within the confines of the existing social relations, that's a neutralization of the emancipatory content of the anti-racist struggles. And so I, that antagonistic character, that contradictory character of the process is what I want to emphasize, rather than the perspectives, you know, which are very prevalent now, which say that there's something intrinsic about anti-racism that lends itself to being co-opted, or there's some way in which, you know, uh, opposing racial oppression means that you don't actually challenge the rest of the social system. I think that those views are very mistaken. I think they don't account for the contradictory and conflictual character of the process. I think I think this is um, um, what you've just said is is uh, extremely profound and and uh, refers to some uh, you know what on the basis of of what you you've, you've said I, I I would describe as some uh, obscurities or obfuscations that have led to some. <coughs> uh, poor thinking like tra traps into which i've also uh, fallen because if i if i understand you you, you, you correctly like neutralization as you describe it has two faces that's it's the process that on the one hand within a kind of often uh 
sort of soi disant socialist left consists in kind of saying and this is what i meant by a critique of critique of identity politics of of leading to nominal socialists saying things like no 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 um uh anti anti racist struggles are uh, primarily about um, bourgeois conceptions of of identity in terms of recognition and social mobility. We as socialists must focus on redistribution, especially like in a more think of the American context, social democratic. You know the the, the goals of of um, universal healthcare or um, limiting the power of corporations and so forth. And 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 this this means a. a dissociating part of the neutralization um the uh, searching dissociating socialism from the <laughs> eternal content in relation to the goal of universal emancipation of anti-racist and anti-imperialist struggles so it seems to me that's that's one strand of what you mean by neutralization but the the obvious one is uh, kind of a uh deracinated talk of of race as um as simply uh, a, a kind of eternal um uh, identity property um that then um the the recognition of which can then be managed by um uh the HR departments of corporations and uh, universities and and so forth, and I I I think in insofar as this this debate between the the two neutralized strands kind of continues interminably, especially online, I think it's 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 maybe easy in the absence of of an analysis like yours to sort of get drawn into one side or the other, like like to have a kind of um, suspicion of socialism communism from the perspective of anti-racist struggles of thinking no those guys are just going to sort of center the the white working class or, or ignore what is important in in our struggle or um conversely on on the socialist left uh, the, the mistaken idea that um the that anti-racist struggles uh are invariably um, and always going to be simply um, uh, about um, r- about recognition in this sense. Is is that is that a fair account, Assad? Yeah, I mean, look when um, when people make this kind of when they when they voice this concern that socialists will be so preoccupied with a kind of race neutral conception of class that they will not pay attention to uh, the very real forms of racial differentiation and domination yeah. that take place, there's a, absolutely no reason to prove them right. I mean, you know, why, why would you do that? There's, there's no reason to actually embody this uh, concern that people have. Um, I, but but I, I, would, I would like to emphasize one point which I think it's um, something that I often uh, encounter and that I, I feel needs to be better thought through, better discussed, is that both adherents and detractors 
of my own argument sometimes will say that I am looking to return to the radical roots of identity politics or that I want to present a synthesis of Marxism and identity politics. But, you know, and maybe in some ways that would be more convenient. Um, it would be more comprehensible or more popular. <laughs> but uh, the truth is that my argument is entirely against identity. It, yeah. I, I'm entirely yeah. opposed to identity as yeah. at two levels. So first, I'm opposed to identity as a category of analysis if we want to understand race. Because identity, insofar as we are talking about the attributes of a personal self, is precisely the wrong way to understand race. That is, I am not, I don't belong to a racial category because of attributes of myself. <laughs> Rather, racial categories are produced as part of an impersonal social process, which then categorizes me according to totally arbitrary characteristics. So what comes first is that social process. What comes first is not me and who I am and what my characteristics are. In fact, you know, most of my characteristics are totally irrelevant for the way that I'm racially categorized, right? I mean, that's what race is. Race is the process by which these categories of human beings are artificially generated on the basis of arbitrary characteristics. And the reasons why people are classified in racial categories aren't because of who they are. It's because of um, these complete, again, impersonal, but also, you know, uh, historically contingent factors, like how do we differentiate between these two groups of forced laborers so that we can subject one group to a lifelong process of forced labor while others are able to escape from it before they die. That's the process by which race is generated in the United States in the 17th century. That is that African forced migrants are differentiated from European forced laborers, voluntary migrants, but still forced laborers in indentured servitude. The process by which they are differentiated because initially African migrants, forced migrants are also part of the same category of indentured servitude. So how is it that they're separated so that some of them become chattel slaves and some of them um, have the prospect of ending their term of servitude? Racial categories are generated to do that. And then they use physical characteristics, which once again are, are in terms of human biology, in terms of human culture, totally arbitrary. Those are used as the basis of this differentiation. So in order to understand race, you can't start with identity. If you start with identity, you think that like, Part of who I am is that I belong to this race, but that's not true. You know, that doesn't explain it. So that's one problem. Then the second problem is that um, identity is not the basis of politics. And you, you know, it's a confusion when people conceive of identity, of a politics of identity, 
as the politics of marginalized populations or minorities or whatever. The, ba the, the, the fundamental politics of identity is the politics of national identity and it's the politics of the majority. It is the fundamentally exclusionary politics of national identity. That's, that's the most basic form of identity politics. It's totally non-emancipatory. It is, and, and you know, Badiou explains this very well in the sense that um, the major politics that he has participated in, the, the politics of the sans-papier of, of immigrants, is the one which specifically is against identity politics in yes. the sense of the politics of national identity. So you have to understand that emancipatory politics must take a position against identity. That's basic and fundamental. So unfortunately, it's hard to make this argument because the discussion of identity is so confused and muddled that it seems as though identity politics just equals any politics that has to do with race or gender or other categories of that kind. But that equation should be questioned. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think historically, as as well as conceptually, politically, like what you're saying is is undeniable, right? Like like um, the you know the invention of race for uh, specific purposes, uh, right? Like like to allow you know chattel slavery for one while while kind of a, another equally sort of. Um, uh, terrible. Uh, sorry, not uh, not equal. Uh, uh, actually, e equally is precisely the wrong word. Um, an unequal, um, but but still existing, like exploitation of oppression of other kinds of labor. Uh, uh, you talk about the the way, say, um, uh, immigrants uh, like Irish workers and and other members of the white working class were uh, specifically um, uh, dissociated from. Um, uh, African Americans as part of uh, a, a a strategy of of the ruling classes and so forth, and I I, I think yeah the, the the tendency of the category of identity to reify and substantialize um, um, categories used in this way um, uh, to manage social relations and economic production at, at, at certain times is a, is an uh, appalling one. But, um, it, it uh, whenever, whenever I have encountered arguments like this and which seem precisely correct, um, for me, I, I am confronted again and again by the extent to which these arguments, uh, go unheard and tend to get processed through the lens of identity uh, of identity as in as in again you're, as in you say this sort of thing and people are saying ah is are you saying that because you have a kind of liberal universalism that wants to ignore anti-racist and anti-imperialist struggles and this makes me want to ask you um what do you have to say about I'm not sure how to, how to describe it. I suppose I would say the the hegemony of the category of identity um, for uh, of, of how that hegemony came a, came about and and uh, seems to determine so much of of any any of the way any kind of discourse around these sorts of issues tends to go. Yeah, I think you know it, this is a 
very important question because we encounter it constantly. Yeah. Why is it that identity has such a hold on people? Why is it that um, discussion of these political problems or these problems of social analysis are so consistently brought back to identity, even if we have established all of these, you know, historical facts and so on that point out that um, identity uh, isn't really an effective explanation. I think, you know, identity very strongly corresponds to ideology, yes. quite clearly in the sense that Althusser theorized it and which goes back, you know, to the, um, all the way to the, original critique of ideology, which was advanced by Spinoza. And so what, what is ideology in this sense? Ideology is, you know, I, I sometimes in talks have um, given a definition of identity in which I say that, you know, the definition of identity is that it's, uh, you know, uh, an imaginary representation of our relation to our real conditions of existence. And sometimes people write that down, like, oh, no, hold on, say it again. But it's like, you know, I just plagiarized it from Althusser's Althusser. yeah. definition. <laughs> yeah. It's total, complete plagiarism because it's <laughs> totally, it totally explains the issue, which is that our real conditions of existence, you know, the structural conditions of existence, which are impersonal conditions, are the ones which generate racial categories. But the framework of identity or of ideology is when we take the, those categories which are produced by these impersonal social relations and take them to be the result of our will or yes. take them to be aspects of our personal experience and so on. And, you know, this is, this is it's, it's, it somewhat scrambles the theoretical references, you know, that, we're talking about Badiou and so on, which is its own thing. But then I think actually there's a great level of, you, you mentioned how my book talks about Stuart Hall. I also talk about Judith Butler. I talk about other figures in uh, cultural studies and so on who advanced a very important critique of identity at this level. And I think that it's worth revisiting that, um, which, 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 which is an account of how we, produce identity categories uh, in a way that understands everything in terms of the will of some kind of foundational subject and its experience, yes. rather than understanding the way that that subject is the effect of a social structure. That's, that's what's fundamentally going on in um, the logic of identity. That is that we take these impersonal social phenomena that have resulted in us being categorized as a race, and then we say that race is an aspect of our personal experience or that it's uh, the result of our own uh, conscious uh, um, belonging to any particular group or something of that kind. And, and that's, that's a kind of, that's the basic move of ideology, which we're constantly at risk of. Uh, when we mistake the, the causes of things to be a result of our will. 
And that's the basic structure of ideology, which was identified by Spinoza and then carried forward in a Marxist analysis by Althusser, uh, that we constantly encounter. And it's the result of the fact, you know, once again, we, we can't conceive of it as just a mistake, you know? Okay, so mistaken identity, I don't know. People make, can make of that title what they want. But it's, it's not as simple as saying that identity is a mistake because ideology is also not just a mistake or an illusion or a delusion. It's a material phenomenon which results from the fact that our perceptual capacities are limited. And we are not able to understand just at the level of our own everyday consciousness or experience all of the causes that have constituted us, that have put us where we are. And so we form these partial understandings in which um, our everyday existence is the result of our will. That's the basic, that, that, that's what ideology is at the psychic level, fundamentally. And um, so that, that is the material phenomenon. It, it's, it's the result of these real material conditions, uh, but it's not the same as a real understanding. And so we have to engage in a rational process. We have to be able to use reason to understand uh, what's actually caused this. So that's, you know, there's no way around that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I hear in your sort of... Um, uh, exemplary kind of exegesis of, of a sort of spinozist Althusser. Uh, you, you mentioned a um, phenomenology before, and, and one could say a, a bunch of things of the, the actual uh, tradition of phenomenology, uh, 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 Husserl and, and, and Meloponte, and, and, we, and we might have a sort of, uh, we might have um, more uh, positive things to say about aspects of that tradition, but it, it, it seems to me that one thing uh, that you're, and, and again, I, I would be very sympathetic to, to this, is it, uh, um, absolutely opposed to uh, is a, a kind of phenomenology in the broad sense which kind of centers lived experience because it, 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 it seems to me not that you're like obviously indifference to people's like experiences and suffering and so forth, but that you, you would make a, a critique something along the idea of, uh, uh, along the lines of Spinoza's notion of the first kind of, of, of knowledge, right? That, um, that one takes through lack of knowledge of inevitable, I think importantly, inevitable, uh, <coughs> lack of knowledge about causes and the interconnection of causes, one tends to take something that is an effect, i.e., oneself as a as a cause, and that this is this is part of that um, of of the nature of ideology as imaginary uh, relationship to to real conditions of existence. So this this leads me to to uh, a question that I'm I'm going to have a, a little bit of of trouble articulating let me just think this through so it's like it 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 seems to me on on the one hand that through this kind of theory of of ideology and an althusserian theory where ideology has material existence where ideology um, interpolates individuals as subjects that one of the things you have to understand about ideology is it's not just exactly as you said it's not just a an error or um you know uh, the the 
product of false propaganda or something like that, 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 that it has a more fundamental character that, that uh, societies uh, geared towards the reproduction of their own kind of social form or their, or, and social relations um, produce ideology and that in a sense we are subjectivized through ideology because of an inevitable misrecognition of, of um, you know, effects as causes and so forth. Um, but I wonder, I, I don't know what your feelings are and, you know, I, I suspect you, you might have some ambivalence towards uh, psychoanalysis, but thinking of some kind of Lacan, uh, Althus, uh, obvious Lacan, Althusser continuities or connections, it, it, it seems to me that there's, it, it, we can talk about, yeah, identity in terms of fundamental, inevitable ideological misrecognition, which, which can only be kind of um, uh, addressed by moving from, in Spinoza's terms, the first to the second kind of, and, and ultimately the third kind of knowledge through the development of common notions, through rational processes and, and so forth. But I, I wonder if there isn't something to also to be said here about the nature of fantasy and, and, and desire in all of this, because what, one of the things that I'm thinking about, um, and not to, uh, you know, say something like tediously uh, biographical and, and, and identitarian, but, but uh, I, I, I am as, as a, 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 a person of, of mixed race and, you know, neither of are, are uh, white people according to these the the dominant you know identitarian categories but it 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 seems to me that uh for, for, for me i've i've always found um the uh i've always been surprised by the way identity by by me being uh, offered the chance to kind of identify with some of these kind of contingent arbitrary traits of mine um i've always been surprised about the way that i think people yes mostly liberals in institutions kind of hold uh identity out as a as a promise or a desideratum as, as like this is something that society can give you you know uh, brian Assad. um we imagine that what you want in the world is for your identity to be respected and uh i've always maybe perversely uh you know found this undesirable and associated it with among other things um racism you know i i, I recall i recall a, a moment when uh, uh i was on a, a a panel with a bunch of people and and the the uh, panelist was was sort of apologizing for the number of of uh, of white men on the panel and then uh the uh, this this perfectly nice kind of woke person sort of uh, corrected himself and and looked at me and said, "Oh no, sorry, um, uh, not there aren't two white men here. There there are uh, two and a half white men." <laughs> yeah, and uh, and uh, I I found this appalling, but I realized that I think it was intended as a kind of as a kind of gift. So. Where I'm going with all of this blathering, forgive me, I thought, is I as I was wondering if you could 
whether you thought that in addition to the fundamental dimension of ideological misrecognition that keeps us sutured to categories of identity, that there might also be at the moment a sort of compensatory aspect, right? That, that, that there's something that says, okay, these, the struggles for universal emancipation are impossible. Um, you, you can't expect social change. Uh, neoliberalism has, has like depoliticized society in the name of economic governance. But what remains, what you can, what you can still seek is some sort of recognition of your identity. And the last thing that I, I wanted to say uh, uh, about that just as a, a kind of coda is uh, it seems to me that, that as a kind of desideratum, recognition of identity is also something that seems to play a role in the fantasies of the extreme right of, of ethno-nationalisms and so forth. Like I see I see the articulate, essentially fascist kind of organizing themselves around kind of identity characters and resentments around their identity not being properly acknowledged and so forth. And yeah, I'm not sure how cogent what I just said was, but I, I'm wondering whether you have anything to say to that. Well, I totally agree with you about how appalling such formulations are, and, you know, they're, but they're regrettably very common in the sense that this highly sophisticated liberal discourse about identity actually constantly ends up just going back to the most crude, disgusting, you know, kind of drops of blood kind of theories. Totally. I mean, uh, that is really appalling. Um, and uh, I, I, I think you're right uh, to point to the way that this takes hold at a psychic level through fantasy and so on. I mean, that, that would be a whole kind of analysis to elaborate, you know, how is it that ideology takes hold at the level of the specific psychic processes that people are yeah. undergoing? I mean, I think that that's a very important kind of field of analysis, which, which um, I've not explored in depth, but I, I mean, I think, you know, that it, it, it's worthwhile to try to understand how it is specifically that ideology takes hold. Um, but I think that, um, you know, we can understand it, we can interpret it, um, but we also have to be able to just kind of directly and unambiguously negate it and reject it, which is the, it's, that's the challenge today how to do that, how to do that effectively, because, you know, it's not enough to just say that we have a rational refutation of it, of course. You know, you cannot counteract the sad passions by showing how they're wrong. <laughs> you have to counteract them with... A stronger passion is the orthodox, yeah. Stronger affects, yeah. yeah. Which leads towards action rather than towards passivity. Yes. That's the challenge that we have. Um, and uh, I think uh, it, it remains to be seen how most effectively we can do that. We have to figure that out. Most, most definitely. Uh, the, a, 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 a strange uh, uh, possible, uh, I'm not intending it to be a, a, a tangent, but uh, something this, this, this question of, uh, of, um, uh, joyful 
affects and sad passions curiously reminds me of is is a, another thing that you're highly critical of in in the book that I wanted to ask you about re- related to your rejection of of the category of identity um, is uh, Afro pessimism, um, and I uh, this is actually something that I I don't I I know very little about, and it's uh, surprising because because you also um, describe Afro pessimism, although associated with certain American theorists, you suggest at one point that it's also something that's that's kind of filtered through in popularized form, popularized form onto onto uh, you know into some internet discourse. You mentioned Twitter and Tumblr around race and and so forth, and I. I'm I'm not familiar with this uh, body of of work at all. Uh, maybe perhaps my, my, the, our audience uh, uh, is less ignorant than me. But I I, I wondered whether you could both uh, talk a little bit about this phenomena and and what you uh, consider to, to be so wrongheaded about it. Well, first of all, we can say what were the effects of. Afro-pessimism is a very kind of um, academic intellectual trend. Mm. What were its effects? The effects were that what you would notice most prominently was a language which talked about black bodies, for example. Okay, this yes, this is so perverse, yeah. The most prevalent um, effect of Afro-pessimism. And one thing that we can say is that right now, there's been a kind of tied against that right people have recognized what was always i think fairly obvious that this is a totally degrading way of talking about people dehumanizing i i remember this from like around 2014 everyone on the internet was was talking about black bodies and all of these black people or these were saying what the hell is this language yeah exactly and there's more of that backlash now of saying you know why would you use this terminology? It's yes. Dating, and it's, um, it fundamentally erases the agency of all of the black people who are right now in the streets, you know, during the uh, initial eruption of the Black Lives Matter movement, who are refusing to die, who are refusing to accept that degradation. Yes. Um, and... Uh, you know, because but that was the that was the fundamental move of Afro pessimism was to talk about black bodies and to talk about blackness as social death. Whereas what you really saw in the process of these uh, unfolding social movements was people refusing to be reduced to death, rejecting death, and claiming life. That's that that's the yeah. basic uh, meaning of the slogan. And I think now. Um, that has become a kind of um, um, passe intellectual trend. I think that oddly, you know, now the the major figure of that tendency, Frank Wilderson, has just published a book called Afro Pessimism. But I think that the publication of that book, though it was, you know, celebrated in the New York Times and so on was just totally superseded by the new eruption of a movement. That Christ. <laughs> against death, against the degradation. Um, and I, I really think that um, 
it's just a footnote in this history. And, you know, I, I presented a brief criticism of it, which um, once again was largely about its effects because yeah. as a theory, it was not coherent. Um, and the, you know, there, there were so many black thinkers and activists at the time who were presenting a completely different understanding and um, that's still the case. And I think that they, you know, they've just shown the irrelevance of Afro-pessimism as a perspective because, and, and you know, I would say more generally that um, claiming pessimism as a political position is in the end no more critical or insightful or whatever than claiming optimism as a position. You know, either way, because, you know, passions can also be, they, they can also seem positive, you know? I mean, hope is also a passion. It's fundamentally yes. passive. And, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's hoping for some outcome in the future. That's also passive. <laughs> and that, 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 that is totally out of alignment with the active character of the rebellion. And so I think that, Afro-pessimism is ultimately just a mirror of liberal white optimism and it had no critical character. And I think that um, the actual rebellions against police violence, the actual agency of black people um, in movements now have rendered it totally irrelevant. Uh, I mean, that sounds... Uh, I mean that sounds very encouraging, and I, 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 I this will be the the last question I ask you on 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 this because I, I I know you're saying this is this is not a very interesting phenomenon. It was a, it was an incoherent academic uh, uh, project that had some uh, uptake and is now thankfully being uh, uh, superseded and and kind of consigned to the dustbin of history. But I, I just quickly wanted to ask you. Uh, I mean, even on its on its own terms what what you've said make me makes me wonder like to whom was afropessimism addressed as in as in what was it supposed to be doing on its own terms with with this kind of um uh you talk about like a a kind of reifying centralizing um of the category of of blackness as as you say as as social death in a way that excludes uh brownness and the the, the possibility of of coalitions but maybe even seemingly the, the the possibility of a of a politics of 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 resistance and struggle against that apparent fate like um what was the audience for this kind of uh uh dis uh, discourse I mean, clearly, first of all, the uh, subject of enunciation was highly elite people internal to the academy yeah. who were um, trying to stake out a position of social marginality, of uh, social exclusion, despite the fact of their integration into the, you know, most mainstream of the social institutions of the society. You know, I mean, totally, people who were totally integrated into the white academy 
we're taking this position of marginality through a completely um, uh, uh, reified, but also kind of um, uh, free-floating uh, kind of identity position, one which had no anchor in the actual social processes, hmm. which generated a category like that. I mean, um, and, and that was also the audience. I mean, it was highly internal. It, it was a discourse which is highly internal to the white academy. For all of the claims of um, blackness and so on, it was, it was a very, it was a phenomenon embedded in the white academy. And that's where it was meaningful, you know? Um, and like I said, it had effects at the level of social movement discourse that it was briefly taken up, but I think it was always, it was always clear that there was a tension with what was actually happening in the movements. And I've said that the movements have superseded it. I, I think that's true. But um, I think that at the same time, it's possible that as the movements have more and more of uh, a real effect as they are actually able to change the uh, overall social situation, it's possible that people who are totally cut off from movements, who are once again trying to perform positions within the white academy, will take this language up. But um, it will always be a language which is cut off from the grassroots social movements that... Um, have made people pay attention to it. You know, that's the paradox. And I mean, it's like, it's a pretty classic paradox in which um, the elite intellectual representatives of a social movement adopt a kind of free-floating discourse which legitimizes them within the existing institutions of the society, um, despite the fact that uh, their uh, the position from which they speak has been enabled by social movements that also call their position to question. Yeah, it's not unprecedented, is it? Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, thank, thank you. Um, uh, what, what, this leads me to, to a question about a, another, uh, it's, I suppose it's a, a, a category, uh, a slogan, uh, which I, I think you, about which I think you you have uh, some ambivalence, and and that is, uh, it 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 seems to me part of part of your critique of of uh, Afro uh, uh, pessimist discourse, as, as well as being uh, cut off from the the grassroots movements that gave it legitimacy, and and you mentioned um, thankfully that that um, this. It, it, abstraction uh, and, and dissociation is now being recognized but um it seems to me that part of your critique of that is that also by um uh reifying substantivizing the the category of, of of blackness it it ignored the well ultimately the the horizon of universal emancipation but also the way that um uh d different uh, str struggles against racism were were you know not centered around uh, real struggles against racism centered around this this kind of metaphysical version of a category of of blackness but that um, leads me to another category that I wanted uh, to ask you about and that uh, your your thoughts on and that is 
that is um, the uh, very frequently heard uh, invocations of intersectionality. Okay, well, I mean, this is a complicated discussion because intersectionality, as you know, originates in a very specific discourse of legal studies. And it, it advanced an analysis of, you know, specific situations in which, you know, you are making legal claims about discrimination, which have to address the fact that both racial discrimination and gender discrimination are happening at once, and they're both engaged in, 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 this, in, in, in the situation that you're discussing. This um, is really Crenshaw, and, and just quickly, th this is the version of the category which, which you find unobjectionable. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it's not even a matter of objecting or not, but it, 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 was, it was delimited. Yeah, it was, it, you know, it was quite specific to a yes. situation. The problem is that, and you know, it could be debated at that level. It would be interesting to discuss the, you know, to what extent that um, was an effective and constructive analysis. And I, I would be interested to see people commenting on those original texts in that way. Um, but the thing is that in its prevalent usage, intersectionality got generalized into a theory of identity. And yes. so that, you know, that's one issue, which is, and the problem is precisely that intersectionality was advanced as a critique of identity in the sense that if you understand uh, things in terms of sameness, if you understand them in terms of belonging to an identity category, you efface all the differences also exist within whatever group you've identified according to a particular identity. You know, so, so I mean, that, that, that was part of what intersectionality initially was criticized. Yeah. But, th but then there's another issue, I think, which is, you know, the way, once again, that is generalized as a means of um, social analysis, which is that, you know, of course, it's obvious that we want to recognize the way that class, race, gender, and so on are all operative um, in the particular political situations that we want to study. You know, it's not as though we can isolate one from the other. They're all operative in, in whatever phenomenon we, we want to understand. But the problem is that when, you know, the very language of intersection is one which you know, just geometrically, we are assuming these different lines that are intersecting. Yes. So these lines were things that existed independently, cohesively in themselves, and then intersected. But of course, that, that's not, that's not, and you know, that, that's not a, a way of understanding how things happen, because actually what we're doing is we're, taking a complex social whole, you know, we're taking, uh, you know, one unitary kind of uh, process, uh, which, is, which is complex, and we can identify analytically different aspects of it, which we may, you know, want to use the categories of race or gender or whatever to try to grasp. But 
they don't exist as separate lines. They exist as one social process. And so, you know, it, I think it's very important to emphasize that actually the, the uh, analytical process runs the other way. It's not that first we start from these, you know, um, these uh, lines that already exist in themselves, and then we show how they intersect. It's rather that we generate analytical, analytical categories to grasp aspects of one unitary social process. You know, this is the, this is the you know, I, I mean, I've, I've talked about the, um, the difficulty of moving between emancipatory politics and social analysis, and you know, that's still relevant. But then at the same time, we can contrast different approaches to social analysis, which are more or less effective, more or less materialist, let's say. And the one which says that we can determine the intersection of different social relations at the, at the level of abstraction, which can be characterized by lines, that, that I think is a, a, the, the, exactly the opposite of the method that we need. That, that's brilliant. Th thank you, Asad. Asad, I'm, I'm aware of uh, how long I've been uh, uh, talking to you, and I, 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 uh, I could keep this going for a, a very long time, but I, I, I don't want to uh, take up too much of your, uh, of, of your evening. So um, for this reason, I... I have. Uh, I, I've decided. I'm. I'm going to ask you two final questions, and and the last one, uh, pre predictably, I, I I feel it would be absolutely remiss of me um, not to have my final question uh, to be about, which admittedly may have a few minor follow-up questions around your um, assessment of, of the current situation, what's going on in the United States uh, um, and around the world um, with uh, Black Lives Matter and, and uh, the movements to defund the police. But before I ask that, that final question, um, my penultimate question is uh, just... Given uh, what we've talked about of the the, the strange um, uh, power of the category of, of identity, um, I'm really curious uh, um, about the reception of, of your book and, and discussions and, and debates that, that have come out of it. And, and partially this, this question comes out of a uh, arguably a, a failure of research on, on my part. It's, it's, it's just something that I... Um, um, for my own uh, stupidity, haven't uh, laziness have uh, have not uh, looked into uh, deeply. But yeah, how um, can can you tell me a bit about 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 how your book was received or uh, arguments that you've had in relation to it? Whether it's been uh, uh, enormously misunderstood and so forth. You know, it's a very weird story about the reception of my book because, of course, first immediately. I was characterized as a class reductionist. Uh, inevitably, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, but then the strange thing that happened was that, you know, my book was reviewed by someone who was more, you know, who, who was obviously a class reductionist who gave a very scathing review of my book. And that kind of scrambled the reception. Oh, Everyone sorry. Do you mean when they they reviewed it negatively for not being sufficiently class reductionist? Precisely. Yeah. 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 yeah okay. Sorry. So scrambled the reception, and then I think people were not sure exactly what position to take. Um, 
And you know, that's been, the, so, so that's been the complicated process. I mean, the reception has been a highly polarized one in which some people view it as a class reductionist Marxist analysis, and then others view it as a kind of, um, uh, you know, a, a, an attempt to reinvigorate or to polish up identity politics. And uh, of course, you know, both positions have one basic underlying requirement. You know, to take up either of those positions, there's one condition, which is that you don't actually read the book. Yes. So, you know, that's what I've contended with. Um, and I think, as I've discussed with you, there are many very interesting issues which I've tried to think through in these debates that have come out since. Um, which I think are really genuine discussions and debates that should be had, um, but they they are kind of um, uh, prevented by that polarized discussion. So, but but you know at the same time when the discussion is so polarized, if you try to stake out a different position, people who are totally embedded in that polarization will just understand you to be. Um, reducible to their adversary. Yeah, to one of the poles. Yeah. So that's what's that, that is is a huge part of the reception. Right. Yeah. That must be immensely frustrating because I mean I suppose to to return uh, uh, to where we be, began. I'm I'm not sure you know the the word uh, philosophy is appropriate for it, but insofar as um, theory philosophy is is not politics and and i think um despite an academic tendency to uh, uh uh to think of them as as equivalent um that one of one of the the sort of useful things that that i think theory can do is precisely and i i think your book does this incredibly successfully um cut through like show what is wrong with a polarized framework right that, that it's possible that you can have it's not that polarization is bad in all circumstances of course especially in, in around political issues but can show the way that um an interminable uh, debate with uh, two sets of partisans can can obfuscate um, realities and, 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 and what is going on uh, more than illuminating them. And um, I just, I just want to say this, this isn't really to, to you, Asa, but, but, but um, um, to the audience that because um, these discuss, uh, discussions around these issues are so important and, 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 and so heated, just, just to listeners, I, I, I can't uh, recommend uh, your work uh, enough in 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 this space for for rendering the the service of um, cutting through what I I think has uh, um, is is uh, very sterile uh, and as I keep saying for some reason obfuscatory um, uh, way of framing and thinking about some of these very important issues. I think it's a book that, that frees us um, uh, to uh, think about things in, in more rigorous and, and serious ways. Okay, so this um, does bring me to my uh, uh, my final question, which, I, which I've um, sort of uh, given a, a prelude of, uh, Assad. So can you, you tell me about your, your involvement and, and your thinking of what's been 
uh, going on in the United States and uh, uh, the world since the uh, death of, of George Floyd. Your, your current, doubtless provisional, um, because it is too early to tell and would be hubristic to, to say otherwise, but provisional uh, assessment of the current uh, incarnation of the Black Lives Matter protests, the the um, going on a, a, around the world, and and what uh, is 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 its prospects are, um, how it's going in the uh, uh, face of. We talked a, bit, a little bit about this off off air, um, but what seems to be a, you know an attempt for um, to co opt this movement in the name of I don't know. Uh, corporate etiquette and the election campaign of Joe Biden. Yeah, just your 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 thoughts on what's been going on in these these last few months. So we could have spent the whole time talking about this. <laughs> Indeed. I mean, I will start a little bit earlier and say that you know the major, like um, the, the 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 most significant political development preceding this was the Bernie Sanders campaign in the U.S. Yeah. because. Um, of its relatively unexpected success and that that there was for a brief period what appeared to be a great opening in American politics in which, first of all, the language of socialism became acceptable in a way that it hasn't been for, you know, the entire Cold War history. Yeah. And that that, um, policy measures were which went far beyond what had been deemed to be possible by the political establishment, you know, universal health care and so on, which are not uh, so radical in most of the world, but in the United States still, even with the pandemic, are, you know, represent a highly divisive kind of radical proposal. Absolutely. Uh, so this was an important moment, but it was, of course, defeated. And uh, it was defeated precisely by the operations of the capitalist state, which it had tried to intervene in. That is, you had a movement which tried to enter into the state and thus had to accept its terms. And that meant that um, it was subject to the, you know, kind of, to, to, to what partly the random fortunes of elections, but also to the clear machinations of the, you know, Democratic Party elite and so on, which wanted to suppress this challenge to the political system at all costs. And that's what they did. And so one of the things that was so striking about this movement coming after that was that it was a direct confrontation with the state. That is, it directly confronted the repressive state apparatus of the police. Yes. It was also, you know, I have often argued that spontaneity is kind of inadequate term to describe existing microscopic processes of organization that we may not have been aware of, but which generate what appear to be spontaneous um, uh, political processes. In this case, I, I really, from my own participation, I was convinced that there was a strong spontaneous component 
to these rebellions um, in the sense that many people were drawn out onto the streets who certainly had experience in confrontation with the police at the level of everyday life, but may not have participated in um, political organizations or may not have been part of uh, a formerly political demonstration before. Um, and so this fact that you had a mass mobilization against the state after this moment of a kind of social democratic program that tried to enter into the state, that to me was really what defined that moment. Um, and that was the great problem to think through, which is, you know, I mean, why is it that we didn't have uh, a kind of uh, direct antagonism towards the state in the movement for uh, health care for all? Um, and so that, that was really exposed in this moment. And to me, that's a major problem to think through right now. And we don't know what the future direction of this movement will be because certainly there are processes of um, capture by the state and by capital. Um, in many ways, capital is responding to the fact that social movements are really shifting the tide of public opinion. They are really causing the American public to recognize the legacy of racism, the actuality of racism, and to oppose it. Um, so this is why corporations are taking up the slogan of Black Lives Matter and so on, because they recognize that uh, the American public is really coming to um, uh, to, to, to change its attitudes about race. Yes. Uh, that's important. That, that is the result of social movements. That, 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 you know, burning down a police station really did force the American public to seriously think through the problem of race. Uh, and um, that's beginning to happen. It's not a complete process, but it certainly began. And so... Uh, the state and capital are forced to reckon with that. Um, so we'll see how this develops um, because, you know, one thing about, one thing about spontaneous movements is that they have to find a way to sustain themselves. And for a movement to be sustained, for a rebellion to be sustained means elaborating forms of organization. And, you know, that once again, that, that's, that's something that always will happen in some ways, and we can determine the extent to which it's effective and so on. But uh, we're still very early in the process. So we're going to see what kinds of um, continuous and ongoing forms of organization come out of this. And I would say... Just to return to some of the points we were talking about before you alluded to in your question, what we're seeing now, I think there was this kind of polarization about issues of race and class. And as I've tried to argue, this was a false polarization. Yes. Um, but there is also an authentic polarization. The authentic polarization is the one between the existing reality in emancipatory politics. 
Yes. In no sense maps on in a linear way into this polarization of race and class. That is, there are class politics that are not emancipatory. Yes. And so this authentic polarization is the one that matters. It's the one between the existing reality and emancipatory politics. And that's one which requires us to make a decision. And uh, that's the decision that's going to matter in the coming future. Um, so, you know, I, that, that's the real question. That's the real political question of the future. And the anti-racist movements, I think, have, uh, have, have proposed the possibility of a, of a kind of concrete, organized emancipatory politics that uh, everyone has to engage with and that everyone has to participate in and that will have many consequences in the future. You know, so um, the, the real question is um, what kind of intervention is going to become possible? And so, so I think the facing this authentic division and, and recognizing the necessity for a decision is, is the main political question that we face now. Yeah, M magnificent. I, uh, as, a, as a kind of final uh, a remark, just, just, just on what you, you've said, I, I find, I mean, I, I, I imagine for, for anyone, it's, it's, it's hard uh, not to feel um, uh, uh, moved and, and encouraged uh, uh, by what is going on. But I think, d d you know, d despite what you, you, you rightly said about, about the uh, indeterminacy from the positions we're, we're uh, sitting of the, the necessary indeterminacy of the, of the, of the, of the future, uh, that what part of the way you, you framed that in relation to the Sanders campaign is, is, is actually very encouraging because I think you, you, you heard in the Sanders campaign um, as, as well as the encouraging kind of rehabilitation of um, uh, so socialist discourse in the, in the American context after, after, you know, years of, of the cold war kind of squashing of that in the, in the U S context. But as you say, um, you know, I think I think the focus was was very much on kind of uh, you could say the the effects of of neoliberal capitalism, like the state failing to provide um, um, basic services to the population and healthcare. But the the wave, and obviously that that uh, movement was uh, like in the short term, at least as regards its parliamentary um, goals, uh, defeated. But that when you think about the Black Lives Matter protest in relation to that, you, uh, and you framed it as like the the battle against the the repressive apparatuses of the state. I think it, it it's almost like it adds this necessary thing that was maybe absence from that social democratic or democratic socialist project, which is the acknowledgement that the kind of, maybe I put it, this is, this is quasi bad you in, but that the uh, neoliberal kind of uh, withdrawal of state services 
inevitably like necessary goes alongside or has always gone hand in hand with the kind of excrescent growth of the repressive state apparatus so it 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 seems to me that the black lives matter protests are uh, and that this is a very encouraging thing are are fighting both aspects of that um uh, oppression in the in the present reality that, that yes it's about the repressive state apparatus but the the growth and the excrescent growth of the repressive state apparatus is also you know the other side of the um uh like dismantling of the state as a kind of provider of 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 of, of state services and 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 I think that's a reason to find in this struggle, as as you say, a movement towards that real polarization between um, uh, emancipatory politics and and continuing and and just kind of continuing along the path that we've been on for the last um, forty years, or, or perhaps as a, a, as inflected by longer history until the point of just kind of complete disaster for the for the human race that's 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 very uh, uh, yeah I, that's very encouraging does does what i just said seem in any way true uh, asad or another two-hour discussion <laughs> <laughs> indeed it's an important point to underscore because because of the um, prevalence of neoliberalism as a category in the discourse of the contemporary left. It's very important to have a rigorous understanding of what neoliberalism is, because too often neoliberalism is just equated with anything related to markets, which of course it it doesn't capture anything about the specificity of this period of uh, capitalism. But what you need to understand about neoliberalism is that it's a state-driven process. Absolutely. It's a state-driven process of the reorganization of society. Yes. And all the canonical neoliberals, when they weren't, you know, just engaged in, um, you know, totally dishonest propaganda, were quite clear that they understood the reorganization of society according to the logic of the market, as a project that was driven by a strong state. Especially Hayek, for example, yeah. It was only through a strong state that you could actually achieve this. So the idea that neoliberalism is kind of the hollowing out of the state is misleading. Yes. You have to understand the reorganization of society along market lines and the... um, the, the removal of state provisions for the population, for public welfare. You have to understand that as part of the same process by which law and order is imposed on the population. Exactly, exactly. No, and so exactly as you're saying, the, the hypertrophy of the repressive apparatus is part of that process. And so we have to have a kind of expansive understanding of what it means to oppose neoliberalism, which involves opposing police power. And that's why a struggle against police power is also a universal and anti-capitalist struggle. You know, I mean, some people try to argue that the um, anti-racist character of the contemporary movements um, doesn't adequately account for the fact that many, for example, poor white people are killed by police and so on. 
but actually that just shows how an anti-racist movement which targets police power will be a benefit to poor white people who are also killed by police. You know, the, the, the anti-racist mobilization is also a benefit to yes. uh, the population. I mean, that's, that's the complicated way that politics works. You have to be able to be aware of that and engage with it. Uh, uh, unquestionably. Uh, uh, Assad, this, this has been a, a, a real uh, delight for me. This, is, this has been one of the... Uh, the, the best discussions that I've ever had on on this podcast, and I I, I think on on uh, so insightful and on such a series of uh, important issues. I, I really can't thank you enough for your, for your, for your time. Um, um, thank you so much, Assad Haider. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. <laughs>